Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we don't talk about hydrocarbon polymers. Today, we're talking about plastic surgery and its application in medicine and beyond. But before we go into the world of flesh artistry, how have you been? <laughs> flesh artistry is a real term, by the way, that I discovered while doing this. Is it modern? No. Yeah, it sounds a little outdated. <laughs> it is a hundred years old, but mm-hmm. people did refer to themselves as flesh artists or meat artists. I've, I've seen the term um, beauty doctor, which I think is mm. a little... It's a little better, but it's also a bit outdated. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been fine. I've been at school primarily. That's taking up a lot of my time. We're doing Python. It's kicking my ass. Mm -hmm. I'm fighting for my life every day. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Um, coding, right? Yeah. Not snake. No, not the snake. (laughs) We have to to fight snakes in school every day. (laughs) Every day they throw us in a pit with snakes and we have to fight. If we want to stay in the program. (laughs) (laughs) And whoever defeats the most snakes become the next doctor of Sweden. That's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works. Um, no, it's coding. Kicking my ass. I'm starting to, to get it a little bit, but it's um, it's a bit difficult mm. for me. And I'm very mad at you that you don't know coding. <laughs> um, I'm the only trans woman in the world that doesn't do programming. Yeah, I didn't. I, it felt a bit spicy for me to say, but you know how the old stereotype goes. I'm the librarian trans woman, not the, not the thigh highs <laughs> and uh, programming, mm-hmm. unfortunately. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I've recently got out of an enormous amount of work. Uh, finally have a bit of free time to be a person. So that's, <laughs> that's good. But that also means I haven't done anything. I'm working on my next video. did a charity stream. I did a bunch of charity events recently. That was fun. What was the charity it. stream? Uh, for Scare to Cares for Swedish... Uh, oh, for Halloween. Yeah, for Halloween. It's a Swedish non... What's it called? A Swedish non-profit to prevent suicide. Mm. Uh, it's very good. It's very nice. It's hor- played a horror game and uh, got scared shitless. Uh, very fun. Also did a video for Team C's, uh, which is the Mr. Beast thing, where he uh, wants to take out 30 million pounds of trash out of the ocean. So that's fun. That's good. Good for you. Love to clean up the ocean by making a video. Yeah. <laughs> I'm helping. Do you want to tell our audience why we're doing this episode? Actually, <laughs> we're doing this How episode. How did we start talking about it? Because <laughs> I've been I've been talking about them. Uh, I've been talking to the medic, the Swedish like trans healthcare system about giving me free booba, open booba, free booba. You want to get breast implants? Breast implants, <laughs> paid for by the state, mm-hmm. government breast implants. Mm-hmm. Which I I only assume that that like they're both branded with like a hammer and sickle because of socialism. But I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading into that, so I've been doing a lot of... Plastic surgery has been on my mind a, mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. probably going to make a video about plastic surgery, mm-hmm. like on my YouTube channel, when I actually get it, mm-hmm. and not just thinking about it, like doing the work. But in the meantime, we're going to do an episode on the podcast about the history of plastic surgery. I know. Because we're and not. we're barely going to mention breast implants. I think I mentioned it a tiny, tiny bit. Ooh. We also want to thank for this episode... Master of segues here from one topic to another. James Co. for being a patron and sponsoring this episode specifically. Thank you so much because uh, you help us with hosting uh, the podcast. You help us with feeling like the editing is worth it. And uh, also feeling like people are enjoying our work enough to give us money for it. Yeah. So that's, it's honestly a great feeling. 
10 out of 10, 5 out of 7, recommend. Thank you, James. James Coe. Alright, so I want to give a quick overview about what plastic surgery is, because there are a lot of misunderstandings about the field, and there are a lot of divisions within the field as well. So plastic surgery is the practice of restoration, reconstruction, or alteration of the human body. It is called plastic surgery not because it involves any plastic, but because it refers to the plasticity of the human body, its ability to be shaped, its ability to change. This is also why plastic is called plastic, because plastic is, plastic is plastic. Plastic is plastic. That is why it's called plastic. The field can be divided into two fields, reconstructive surgery and cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery is more focused on the aesthetic, whereas reconstructive surgery is both aesthetic and function. I'm ready to, to dive into the history of nose jobs. <laughs> or it's more fanciful name, rhinoplasty which has nothing to do with the rhinos. Actually, it does have something to do with rhinos, because the reasons why rhinos are called rhinos, rhinoceros, is because of the, the horn, the nose. Does rhino mean nose in Latin or something? I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like the, the rhinoceros uh, <clears throat> is like name, like nose animal. I they, don't know what they the They saw is. the animal and they were like... Big horny nose. Nose animal. <laughs> <laughs> the beast nose should be beast. called. <laughs> nose man. <laughs> nose man. <laughs> the nose, the animal. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm starting. Okay. <laughs> so I'm giving you an overview of the history of cosmetic uh, plastic surgery. And I mean, you already told us what plastic surgery is and all that stuff. So I'm not going to repeat what you said. I'm going to just dive straight into the history. Yeah, dive into that now. So we're going to start with ancient Egypt. We're going to start like right from the beginning. So how far do you think plastic surgery dates? As far back as human civilization, I would think. As, <laughs> so, as with many things... The second people could do something, we started doing it. Mm -hmm. the, the, the first person got up and started thinking about the aesthetic. <laughs> I'm, the not, monkey, I'm not hot enough. A monkey stood up on two feet and was like, I gotta get a nose job. I gotta get hotter. Okay, so it dates to roughly 2000 to 3000 BC. And we know about like the, the approximate date when they started doing it. Because the very first mention of plastic surgery is in the Edwin Smith Papyrus. Which, by the way, was named after the American Egyptologist who bought it in the 19th century. <laughs> who bought it? He didn't even discover it. He no, no, bought he it. bought it. And also, like, I, I, I always think it's a bit weird when people like discover things and they just give it like a like a like yeah. a European name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's... here I am in the ancient delvings of Babylon, finding ancient scrolls and runes. I will name them the Mia Mulder rune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also naming it after yourself. I don't know. It's kind of weird. So this papyrus, which is actually an early trauma textbook, contains detailed case studies for a variety of injuries and diagnosis. So it describes primarily how to treat wounds and broken bones, but it also has a lot of information about how to fix nose injuries, which I think at the time was in high demand because people would get in brawls a lot and, you know, there's a lot of, like, conflict. So nose injuries were very common. Mm -hmm. So the way that this papyrus describes how to fix the nose is you, f you fixate the nose into the desired position using wooden splints, lint, swabs, and linen plugs to hold it in place, and then grease and honey are used as antimicrobials. That's not wrong. Honey is, I guess, good. How about grease? I don't. I, well, I do. I, you know, 
bacteria doesn't go that well in grease itself, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking that they probably would use like pig fat, animal fat, yeah. and things like that, yeah. which I'm guessing is not the cleanest thing that you could have. I mean, they could clean it, probably. Okay, I, I, I honestly I don't know about the bacterial content of like <laughs> of lard, of lard. <laughs> so I don't want to um, to speculate. Yeah. But um, yeah, so they the the papyrus contains a lot of information about how to. Uh, fix broken noses, so the very first rhinoplasties, and also in 2000, an ancient mummy with a prosthetic toe was found, and so now it is believed that the wooden toe was meant to help the woman walk, and so that's also kind of like something that is kind of considered to be an early form of plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because it was both functional, but it was also supposed to improve yeah. the person's appearance. It looks good. That reminds me of, good. there's a, I, I, I remind me, there was a story that broke like last year or something, or maybe even this year, about a, about an Egyptian mummy with a gold eye. Mm-hmm. Where, like it was like a wooden polished eye with like a gold detail in it. That's Bombass. I, I haven't seen that. I don't I don't have the details in front of me now, unfortunately, but people on Twitter were like, do not remove the eye. Do not remove the gold lady's eye, because it will bring upon more curses upon the world. Don't do it. Did Leave they it remove, the fuck in the grave. Did they remove the eye? Of course they did. Was they're it they're like, archaeologists. Like December 2019, maybe? <laughs> and the earth has never seen it again. It's never been the same. The priestess is angry. Um, okay, so... Speaking of the ancient world, like, cool yeah, prosthetics. for sure. Like, for people sure. would detail these to be cool. So that was in, in Egypt. Looking at China, in the 4th century BC, they actually did the first cleft lip repair. In Greece, people would generally ignore the existence of cleft lips. Like, I don't think they really cared very much. While Spartans and Romans would kill the children with cleft lips as they were considered to harbor evil spirits. The Spartans would definitely do that. Yeah. Uh, Plato was actually a supporter of the practice and justified it in one of his dialogues in the Republic, explaining that it was a means of removing evil almonds and preserving the soundness of the race. Mm-hmm. I mentioned a little bit about Plato's writings about when, in our episode about eugenics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where... Uh... People have always wanted to remove bad stock mm-hmm. in a weird way. Mm. Hor- horrifying that they would just kill babies because of a cleft lip, which is just like, what? It's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, it. they had a lot of uh, superstitions about this stuff. Yeah. But anyway, the Chinese patient, uh, so he was an 18-year-old youth. His name was Wei Yongxi, who was a soldier in training. The surgery was a success, and after the intervention... Wei Yangshi was recruited into the Imperial Army and quickly rose in ranks by helping to suppress a revolt, eventually becoming Governor General of six provinces. And throughout his life, he affirmed that he would never have achieved so much if his cleft lip had not been repaired. Mm. Which I just thought it was a you know a cute story. Yeah, that is um, pretty cute. And also, I don't know, kind of cool that they were doing it so early in China. Yeah, that they were doing this kind of surgery. China did a lot mm. of cool surgeries, mm. like early on while people talk about the ancient greeks being like the height of civilization back then mm-hmm. they were cavemen compared to the mm-hmm. chinese of this time mm-hmm. the chinese and and uh and the indians also oh for sure yeah. i'm not gonna talk super much about china i primarily have stuff about india because india was actually the place where plastic surgery kind of began mm-hmm. or at least when it comes to rhinoplasties because in india in the fifth century before christ Frequent warfare combined with corporal punishments, like the cutting of the nose or the limbs, led to a high demand for plastic surgery and therefore its development as a field. Mm-hmm. So there is this surgical, this major surgical text 
whose author's name is Rishi Sushruta, who is a renowned physician and teacher who brought major contributions to the field of medicine. So he was among the first medical teachers in the world to advocate for the dissection and study of dead bodies by students of medicine. And uh, he and his students also advocated for the use of wine as anesthesia, and also were among the first to sterilize the operation room. And they did this by fumigating it with fumes of mustard, uh, butter, and salt, <laughs> which sounds delicious. <laughs> delicious. Listen, if you die, you're going to become a great roast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> this is the great inside of an oven. I, I know. It's, it sounds great. I don't know what the butter does. There's they a lot put of... in a chicken in there just as well yeah, while, yeah, yeah. Just while to, doing yeah. surgery. Yeah, yeah, just to not waste it, you know. Yeah. I mean, you might, you might as well. Yeah, well. So, you know, he did a lot of... Um, uh, I mean, he paid attention to the to the need to have some sort of anesthesia, even though it was... I mean, it was just wine, so it wasn't super advanced, but it was something. Yeah, being drunk helps. And um, he also recognized the importance of sterilization, which uh, some other people I'm not going to mention uh, did not pay attention to until like the 18th mm-hmm. century. He also detailed 15 different methods for performing rhinoplasty. So like I said, at the time, cutting off the nose was something that happened a lot. It was something that marauders from surrounding territories would do to mutilate their victims. Mm-hmm. And it was also a common punishment for many crimes, including theft and adultery, especially for women. Mm. So um, there were a lot of people walking around with their nose cut off. Yeah. Like if you if you do a crime or just happen to run into a marauder, yeah, yeah. let's just buy to the nose. Yeah, and um, I don't know m- much details about it, but I know that the nose was kind of like a symbol of one's social status and it was, it was a symbol mm. of one's dignity. So having your nose cut off was a very stigmatizing mark. So, you know, this created a, a huge demand for rhinoplasty. Mm. Most of his methods included removing a flap of skin, along with the underlying fat from the forehead or the cheek from which the new nose would be modeled, which is actually quite similar to moderns in modern times. So not now, but like this method has continued to be used up until like the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a variety of it is still used today mm-hmm. in cases where the entire nose is gone mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. I'll talk about, about that later when I talk about like more reconstructive surgery. Do they still take the skin from the face? In some cases, mm-hmm. like a variety of it is still used just because yeah. it's, it's really close to the nose yeah, and yeah. it has like similar skin textures, yeah. similar skin color. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I, I, I think it does also today vary a little bit about what people just want because mm-hmm. uh, now we have a bit more freedom to be like, could you not take skin <laughs> from the face? Maybe from the butt. <laughs> Um, okay, and here I have a small excerpt from a medical text that describes the procedure. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I'm going to read it now. <laughs> when a man's nose, or a woman's, <laughs> has been cut off or destroyed, the physician takes the leaf of a plan. I don't know what that means. But I think, I, I think it means he just takes like a leaf. Mm-hmm. Like a leaf-shaped yeah. part of skin? I think. Yeah. No, I think he just takes like, a, like a, a leaf that then he places on the patient's cheek and cuts off out of his cheek a piece of skin of the same size in oh. such a manner that the skin at one end remains attached to the cheek. So he just takes like the sleeve, that's like the shape that he wants to cut mm-hmm. off, right? Then he freshens with his scalpel the edges of the stump of the nose. <laughs> he freshens it. <laughs> and wraps the piece of skin from the cheek carefully around it and sews it at all the edges. As soon as the skin has sewn together with the nose, he cuts through the connection with the cheek. Okay, but I think that this this makes sense. Like they cut a piece of the skin in like almost like a like a triangle shape, mm. and then they fold it over 
the nose hole, they sew it mm-hmm. together, and then they just clip it off. Yeah, I, I while mean, st- like while still attached to yeah, to while the, still to attached parts of the body, so like blood flow keeps exactly. going. I'm not really sure what happens with the huge gap <laughs> that remains mm. in your cheek, but maybe like it just kind of becomes like a. I mean, depending on the, the depending on the size of, of what you're removing, like you could probably like sew it together a little bit mm. to stretch the Maybe. skin. Maybe. But it, it would it would probably depend on the method and where you take the skin from. Maybe. Okay. Moving on. So Aulus Cornelius Celsus, who is considered <laughs> one of the most important Roman medical writers, used a similar technique to repair mutilated lips, ears, and noses in the classical medical text in the first century, De Medicina. <laughs> Um, Emperor Emperor Justinian II of the Byzantine Empire is believed to have benefited from the nasal flap reconstruction procedure. And I don't know if you know this, but he was overthrown as an emperor because from what I understand, he was a very cruel leader. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the people who overthrew him cut off his nose because they thought that his disfigurement would prohibit him from regaining his status as an emperor. Mm -hmm. However, he got his nose job, took back the throne... And apparently got, like, hundreds of times more cruel than he was before. (laughs) He was so much worse. (laughs) Uh, I believe he is one of the emperors who is famous for making thousands of people blind. Oh, no. Um, Yeah. And uh, what's really interesting is that there is a statue. It's called the Carmagnola statue. And you can still see a forehead scar and the marks of the reconstructed nose if you look at it closely. And I have a picture of it here. um... You can show that on Twitter. Yeah, I'll show it on Twitter. That's that's very fun. Yeah, yeah. The the fact that they they actually modeled the statue to look like him and bear the... The resemblance, yeah. like the scar. I think that he probably owned his sort of like yeah, yeah. reclaiming of the yeah, nose exactly. and the throne. Because like a lot of these statues are often romanticized, yeah. like Instagram filters, but yeah. like a thousand times worse because they want to look pretty. Yeah. So I, I can, t- I, you can tell that he wanted to be like, no, you show the scar because mm. I came the fuck you, back. I came back. Don't yeah. call that a comeback. <laughs> I've been here for days. Wait, where's that from? It's from a song. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Don't call it a comeback. <laughs> I've been here for years. I don't know how it is. <clears throat> okay. So now we have to go through a few major historical events super quickly in order to reach uh, modern times. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go through like 500 years. Yeah. <laughs> like super quick. Okay. So in the 5th century, uh, Rome falls. Barbarian tribes alongside Christianity spread throughout Europe. In the 10th century, the Islamic Empire conquers India, and so indical surgical techniques get integrated in Islamic medicine. We've made an episode about that. Go check it out. That's great. Um, The Islamic Empire, in its turn, transfers that knowledge to Europe following the occupation of Sicily during the 9th to 12th centuries. And in the 13th century, Pope Innocent III prohibits surgical procedures of all kinds. So we went through 1st century to 13th century. In the 14th century, the Renaissance brought about a revival in the practice of medicine and science. And while few advancements were produced, the early Indian techniques were kept alive and practiced with much secrecy in Italy and Germany in particular. Mm -hmm. Lest the Pope comes after you with his Pope stick. Yeah, but I think that people also just, like, not everybody knew about how to actually do it. And the people who did wanted to be the only ones who did it. Oh, for sure. Um, A lot of academics in this time... Like yeah. When they know a secret, they're keeping it. Yeah. So, for example, the Branca family, this was an Italian family of medical practitioners, were among the, the few to utilize the Indian skin flap rhinoplasty technique. The Branca son modified the technique by using a skin flap from the arm instead of the forehead. 
And in Germany at the same time, an interesting development of the method was taking place. So it was actually a German, a Bavarian army surgeon uh, named Pfalzpeint. It <laughs> sounds have, Bavarian. I yeah. have a lot of names, a lot of foreign names mm-hmm. in this episode that I'm not sure I'm pronouncing correctly, but I hope I am. It's Bavarian, you can say yodel. <laughs> so he was the one who used a two-stage technique. He would cut a flap of skin from the biceps area and suture it into the, uh, into the defect and then bandage the arm to the head. And after 8 to 10 days, sometimes 15, he would divide the pedicle and inset the flap, forming the nasal dorsum, uh, the nasal folds, and the septum. And this technique was very guarded. Apparently, he would tell his students the following. If one comes to you with a cut-off nose, let no one watch and make him swear to tell nobody how you cured him. (laughs) This was like the NDA at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, his technique was not kept a secret for long. Leonardo Fioravanti, (laughs) Um, a physician from the University of Bologna, visited the Branco brothers and got permission to watch several nasal reconstructions by posing as a Bolognese nobleman. He explained that he had come on behalf of a relative who had lost his nose in the Battle of Serave, and he wanted to observe the procedure so that he could tell his relative what to expect. Um, the brothers consented to Fioravanti's request, and when the patients were ready, they called him in to watch the procedure. The, the trickery of it. I know, and this is what he says. Pretending to be horrified at the sight, I turned my face away, he writes. But secretly, I made sure I was able to see everything. <laughs> I saw the whole secret from beginning to end and learned it well. Um, this so, is so good. I, I love know, this. He's like sneaking I in. Just, I just want to see how it looks like. I just, just I'm like, so no. concerned for my relative. I have to tell him. He's like super scared. I have he's to so tell nervous. Him. He's so nervous. I just want to make sure that he's okay. Like taking yeah, notes. Yeah, taking notes in the shadows. Um, so not only did he take notes, he also published his experiences in a manuscript entitled Il Tesoro della Vita Humana. Which obviously translates to the Bavarian suckers who I fooled. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the exact translation. Yeah. So he he published this manuscript that probably inspired another Italian surger by the name of Gaspare Tagliacozzi, who improved and delayed, delayed the technique. And, you know, there's a lot of names here, but everybody that I name kind of plays a really important role in how this technique develops and like spreads throughout the world. So I feel like it would be a bit unfair if I weren't uh, naming them. So the Tagliacozzi method was considerably longer than that of Faltzbind, taking place in six stages over four months. And his work is especially important as Europe was undergoing a syphilis outbreak at the time. So this was like the 16th century. So as you know, syphilis leads to soft tissue decay, which affects the nose and leaves a gaping hole in the middle of one's face. And as you can imagine, this was a horrible disfigurement, which also carried the social stigma of disease and infection, not to mention the moral connotations of sexual activity. So um, the work of Tagliacozzi and other plastic surgeons carried a lot of interest, at least in theory. And I say in theory because the technique was still crude and poor outcomes were common, including tissue rejection, necrosis of tissue due to insufficient blood supply, loss of transplanted tissue due to insufficient suturing. Not to mention that rhinoplasties were performed without the use of anesthetics, and the procedure itself was long and, and very uncomfortable. I mean... There's a like, lot of negatives here, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of me- negatives, but just like thinking about how they would cut off flesh from your arm, suture it to your face, and then bandage your arm to your head, and then you cannot move it for mm. like two weeks. 
And then it also might not work. Yeah, it might not work. <laughs> Just suffering in pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... People, like, you know, people would do... Wild stuff to yeah. get pretty noses, yeah, or like to you know get, I mean, to get just quote get, unquote like a normal a nose. face. Yeah, yeah, so so they wouldn't have like a hole in their face. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, people were like afraid to do it. They knew that it wasn't like it wasn't a guarantee that the procedure would work. And Taglakotsi was also poorly regarded by the church, who thought that his work was interfering in the affairs of the Almighty. And God the, has said this hole should be in your face. Yeah, but anyway, so. Unfortunately, Tagliacozzi didn't have a very like nice ending. Uh, he was excommunicated and his corpse was exhumed from its church grave after his death and was placed in unconsecrated ground. In the end, however, the procedure reached neutrality with the church. And this was because the rhinoplasties occurred before the use of anesthetics or asepsis and were very uncomfortable for the patient. So the church deemed that the discomfort is penance enough to the patient. They punished him so like horribly, you know, for his work. And then they were like, eh, you know what? It's fine. It's fine, actually. <laughs> like you suffer enough. I guess that's good enough for us. He's such a bad surgeon. He's probably fine. Yeah. <laughs> But so, as I mentioned before, uh, because the procedure was painful and unsuccessful, in addition to the association with sexually transmitted infections, rhinoplasty slowly lost the interest of the public and the medical community until, that is, the 18th century. And that is due to the flurry in published media that made access to scientific texts easier. So the proliferation of media led to a renewed interest in the rhinoplasty techniques that had previously gone out of style. A publication of the Italian method, including diagrams, reached to the public as well as various members of the scientific community, reigniting interest in rhinoplasty as well as the general field of plastic surgery. So this way, the rhinoplasty technique continued to be refined up until the mid to late 19th century, when the basic tenets of successful nasal reconstruction were established. In addition, with the onset of asepsis and anesthetics, surgery became more successful for both patients and physicians. And at first, anesthetics had to be continuously inhaled, um, including, you know, that includes ether, chloroform, and nitrous oxide, which obviously limited their use in rhinoplasty. However, at some point, cocaine came along. <laughs> and saved the world. was an absolute game changer for rhinoplasties. Um, the technique <laughs> would continue to evolve as well with the first ever intranasal rhinoplasty, where tiny incisions hidden behind the nostrils would aim to diminish facial scarring. Even then, rhinoplasties were not yet seen as necessary by academic medicine, as few reputable surgeons devoted their practices exclusively to reconstructive or aesthetic surgery. Jacques, Jacques Joseph? Jacques Joseph. Well, he's German. <laughs> So Jack Joseph. Pardon. Why does he have a, a French name if he's German? He might be from uh, the region of Alsace-Lorraine. Okay. He might he might be in one of those areas where you can be both French and German at the same time. Okay. Well, his name is Jacques Joseph. Yeah. Um, yeah, he probably comes from like like uh, Jacques Joseph, like the Rhineland or something. Okay. Like yeah. So he was a German orthopedic trained surgeon and as one of the surgeons considered a forefather of modern rhinoplasty. He contributed a lot to the field of plastic surgery, but um, there's something a little questionable about him that I'm going to mention. No. Um, so his practice is known to have been influenced by anti-Semitic feeling. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And he saw himself giving as giving the gift of beauty and contributing to Jewish patients' well-being. No. 
well-being by performing rhinoplasties. Are you no? Are you are you? Is he starting rhinoplasty practice to get rid of the so-called Jewish nose? A lot of his patients were wealthy, like Jews, <laughs> who wanted to get rid of the nose. Yeah, I mean, or, is that is that the implication? Yeah, well, but I mean, you know, he had a private practice, and then Jewish patients would come to him. So it's not like he was. Oh, okay. So he wasn't anti-Semitic. Did people just want to like escape anti-Semitism by trying to I look less both. Jewish? I think both. I ah. think he, you know, people wanted to escape anti-Semitic culture, and he himself would encourage it. He would mm. he would see himself as doing them a favor by getting rid of their large noses. <laughs> yeah, the morality of this is not something I'm gonna no. touch on. I I just wanted anti-Semitism to anti-Semitism mention- is bad. Yeah, uh, and I feel very sad that a lot of people felt that they mm. needed to. Uh, reduce, I guess, their Jewish appearance. Yeah, their features. It, yeah. Um, That's... Yeah, no, he thought, he, he thought he was God's gift on earth. <laughs> that, this surely is Germany in that time, huh? Mm. Or Europe. Yeah. But he was also one of the first doctors to use bone grafts to reconstruct the nasal dorsum. That's the, the uh, nose bridge. Mm. And he was among the first to use cartilage suturing techniques, which are similar to non-destructive techniques used today. In addition to the improvement in rhinoplasty techniques, the 20th century also saw an emergence of injectables. Paraffin was extensively used to contour the face, correct wrinkles, as well as absent testicles and small breasts. And it was seen as harmless. Until. (laughs) Until the first reports appeared demonstrating that the substance caused many complications, including paraffinomas, essentially wax cancer. Despite this, many so-called beauty doctors continued to search for a replacement injectable. They experimented with Vaseline, olive oil, white wax, and glycerin, sometimes boiling them in carbolic acid as it was thought, or maybe hoped, that the cause of the complications were infections, which could be solved by sterilizing the substance to be injected. After the First World War, the prosperity of the victorious countries contributed to the acceptance of cosmetic surgery. The carefree climate of the 1920s Europe went hand-in-hand with a renewed appreciation for elegance, beauty, and youthfulness. And plastic surgery thrived. Plastic surgery clinics were starting to pop up, and the field was populated by trained physicians, some of which served as military surgeons, which contributed to the growing respectability of the field. The Association of Plastic Surgeons was founded, as well as the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, which was a more accessible and less exclusive version of the former, and which fostered the development of the field as a serious and skilled specialty. So, you know, we're... we're, uh, Like, a lot of things happened in the 20th century, like, the in the 19th, like, late 19th century, 20th century. Like, we started having an aesthetics, the germ theory started... Yeah, we... we, Is starting to be taken a bit more serious. Maybe you need Um, to be clean. Yeah, people start sterilizing their instruments... Um, new methods and also are being developed. New methods are being developed that are less invasive and just more like delicate. Mm-hmm. And um, you start having these organizations that help establish the field as a serious and yeah, like a respectable yeah. field that is not just as charlatans who are going to yeah. uh, ruin your face and your and your life. Yeah. Uh, so this is what I have. And speaking of the war... Yeah, speaking of war doctors. Speaking of war doctors, I'm going to now give the word to you. You're going to tell us about how the war has actually influenced the development of the field. I do like that we're, that we're mentioning the war. Uh, there have there happened two of, the, two of the great ones. But well, I, I primarily talked is, about yeah, the first one. Yeah, exactly. War, so. That is the war. 
Yeah. I just I just like that that's the mm-hmm. connotation. Okay. Uh, but yeah, let's let's dig into some fun individuals, uh, reconstructive surgery, and the war. So reconstructive surgery and the war. And with any discussion about the First World War, we have to go back to its origins, just as you have mentioned. So we're going to have to go back to 4000 BCE <laughs> once again. I'm not going to repeat too much of what you've uh, talked about here already. As we mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot of overlap between cosmetic and reconstructive surgery. There are only just a few things that I do want to mention. That like there, There's evidence for reconstructive surgery going back super far back, as we mentioned. The earliest evidence of reconstructive surgery that we could find are a, a doctor mentioning in his notes that he's trying to avoid scar tissue while treating a wound. So not like any major surgery, just like scar avoidance. Just something, just a little neat. And that's 4,000 years uh, BC, which is pretty far back. As you mentioned, physicians in ancient India used skin grafts for reconstructive surgery as far back as 800 BC. The Romans would do all sorts of things with reconstructive surgery. But I'm going to skip ahead until the more invasive types of uh, reconstructive surgery, which only really happens around the 19th and 20th century. Because that is when war enters the scene with wonderful new ways to blow people up, starting with the American Civil War. Before this, a lot of wars were like you could get shot with an arrow, maybe with a bullet. Like your body isn't going to be like blown to smithereens unless you're like in the middle of a siege and you get unlucky. But in in those cases, you just die. Mm. But the American Civil War presents a situation where people are losing their limbs and losing significant parts of their body, but still surviving just because bullets are becoming more effective, for lack of a better term, and, and more effective in the sense that, like, weapons, how weapons work. And I think this, this is why wars cause so much more, like, development in surgery, because you would think, from a gut reaction, that, like, a more effective weapon is one that kills better. But that's not how weapons in war actually work. A weapon in war, you want to injure your enemies as much as possible because then they become like a burden on the opponent's society. They mm. have to get healthcare, they have to be taken back. They will consume resources. If the enemy just died, they're gone. If they lose an arm, that's going to drain more resources. So that's how effective weapons work. And that's horrible. That's, that's awful. But that's why you get more and more like injuries as technology progresses. If you were lucky to get reconstructive surgery, and this time you were almost definitely a soldier in a very wealthy area of the American Civil War. Like you probably were under a high-respected general who could have gotten in very sophisticated surgeons. But even here, most reconstructive work did not care about the aesthetics whatsoever. So you would end up with a lot of soldiers where like their faces would have been blown off but they would just like have sewn their noses shut and they would have to breathe through their mouths. No care about function of the nose, for example. But Dr. Gordon Buck was one of the first people who uh, saw a need to like reshape injured soldiers in a way that they could fit into quote-unquote normal society and that they could have normal function of their limbs and of their facial features and, and so on. He has been criticized recent, uh, more recently for like using very simple methods but he didn't really develop new techniques. Like he, he was just like a, a pretty half ambitious surgeon who would use the methods that you talked about, like the Indian method, for example, for, for rhinoplasties and various type of flap techniques. So he would use this sort of like older, like thousands of year old medicine for re- relatively like modern injuries. But he would start using like the basic anesthetics that they had at the time, like whiskey, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, cocaine, <laughs> and saw some degree of success. 
But he did get a lot of criticism from this, not just because he used old methods, but also because the mainstream medical establishment of this time saw plastic surgery as a generally hopeless endeavor. In the sense that like we, it, there, there was an idea that we simply did not have the skills mm. or technology or even that it was like our place to, to change how a person looked like. That was seen as almost unethical. And even if it was ethical, like it's, we, it wasn't possible. A Dr. Otis, I don't have more names than this, said of the attempts to offer plastic surgery to war veterans, as a general rule, the deformities following gunshot wounds of the face and suggesting some plastic procedure are either accompanied by such extensive loss of tissue or chronic diseases of the bones as to forbid any hopeful undertaking in the way of reparative surgery. From the pensioners at the soldiers' home and the National Asylum for Disabled Volunteers, no instances of loss of tissue from gunshot wounds have been reported where autoplastic operations could be undertaken with reasonable anticipations of success. That's really interesting because from like what I've read, it seemed that they primarily saw it as unnecessary Kind of like a waste of time. Yeah. Not so much as like undoable. And a lot of them just saw it as like this. This is not gonna be. This is, we can't do it. Like mm-hmm. it's not gonna be good. Like there's and they probably saw it as well. Like there's no point to do it. And also, if we did do it, we, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this definitely like stunted mainstream development in plastic surgery for a long time. Most of the reconstructive surgery being done was mostly done with no standardization of methods, either during this time, so you can kind of see where they're coming from. No formal training, no plan of action, leading to extreme levels of infection and loss of limb, even when they did do limb attachments. Oftentimes, uh, limb reattachments was done on a sort of gut feeling by the surgeon, like they would just stitch nerves together if they could, like muscle tissues together. Mm, just hope it works. And just hope it works. And almost it almost never did. And even if it did, like they would rarely regain any function of the limb. They would just be like, maybe they got blood flow going and that was it. It wasn't until the First World War, as you mentioned, and the mass carnage that came with it, that there was a big enough need for some doctors to start dedicating themselves solely to reconstructive work. Which brings me to Harold Gillies, one of the fathers of plastic surgery and the guy to talk about when it comes to reconstructive surgery. This guy came up all the time. When I tried to find like a wider history of mm-hmm. reconstructive surgery, because you can see how I was sort of glossing over some areas, all of them basically say, none of it matters. Everyone sucks. Harold Gillis is the man. <laughs> he is the guy you talk about. So he comes up over and over and over again. He is considered to be the father of modern plastic surgery, mainly for his contributions in standardizing the methods and knowledge of reconstructive and reparative work in the wider medical community. He was a New Zealand doctor, and he was posted in France during the First World War in 1915, where he saw some of the worst injuries known to man, including heat burns, chemical burns, shrapnel, uh, shotgun blasts, you name it. He managed to set up a ward at Cambridge Military Hospital for facial wounds, and he would make sure that patients suffering from uh, facial wounds would be sent there. Like, he would send notes to doctors throughout the front and be like, if you have anyone with, like, facial stuff, send it to me. And demand became so big, he got overwhelmed, especially after the offensive at the Somme, that within a year, the ward had to move to become a full hospital on its own. And at this hospital, they did develop a couple of new techniques to help people with their, with their wounds, and also spread already existing methods and making it more of a regular surgery than a niche thing that some surgeons bothered to look into. And doctors would come in from all over the British Empire, they would come from France, they would come from America, and learn from Gillies, and they would uh, gather texts. This is one of the few places where they would really try to like gather the knowledge of plastic surgery. The Indian method here becomes like pretty standard, and they develop it even further. One development that he himself is credited with was the intranasal skin graft, 
to correct nose defects due to leprosy, establishing an entire new principle for how to treat leprosy-related defects in the nose. Did they have a lot of leprosy, like, around the First World War? Not a ton. Like, I'm a bit surprised it comes up. I mean, it did, st- it did, did still exist. This is, like, right before a lot of mainstream medic- medicine, like, becomes hmm. popular, so mm-hmm. it, it definitely still happened. They still have plague, in, uh, like, occasionally. Well, I mean, we, we also still have plague in some regions, but it's not like yeah. a... Like a killer. Yeah, it's not a killer. It's not something that happens often. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if it's... I don't think it was a big societal problem, yeah. but it was definitely a problem that happened often enough that it, that he would develop method to deal with it. I think it was also common to happen a bit at the front. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm wondering. Was Did it have anything to do with just, um, you know, people living maybe in, qu- in close quarters yeah. or things like that? I mean, the trenches were the one of the worst things in terms of like biomedical safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's dirty. It is very humid. Mm-hmm. A lot of people walking around. People mm-hmm. moving back and forth. A lot of people getting sick. A lot living, of people living together. Sick. Yeah. Sleeping together. A lot of yeah. blood. A lot of rotting flesh too. Like it's. it's you don't want to be in the trench. Um, I certainly don't. You don't want to be in the trench. Uh, Gillies also pioneered new methods for reattaching severed limbs by degloving the amputated section of skin and suturing the limb bone to bone, tendon to tendon, and nerve to nerve. Degloving. Degloving. That sounds horrible. Which, which sounds like you, which is what you think it sounds like. They take the skin and just peel it back, like, and peel back the muscle so the mm-hmm. bone is exposed. Mm-hmm. Just really peel off the various layers of, of flesh. And then they put in the, like the more core parts first, sew it together, peel back the, the meat and then the skin. So I'm not, uh, you know, super big on anatomy, but isn't, like, muscles and tendons, those are attached to the bone. So how do you peel it back in a way that you can then reattach it? Uh, I honestly think that they de- they detach the connections to the bone. So I mean, And then okay. they reattach them, like, okay, during by, by hand, like, manually. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and bit by bit. And we're talking really delicate work here, too, right? Um, I cannot imagine how they would do that. And was it? I mean, was it like a common procedure too? I mean, I feel like it would take a very long time to do that. It was a very common procedure, but it was not something that you would do. This is not something that happened at the front. <laughs> this is something that happened like in a hospital way back at the front. Like if they and if they managed to like I don't know protect the leg and keep the and keep the person like alive and everything. Very specific circumstances you would need for it to work. But when it did work, it worked well. Mm-hmm. This actually saw significant amounts of success, like rejection didn't happen as much, and sometimes they got some like partial control back of the of, of the of the limb. That's really interesting. I need to look into it because I I honestly can't imagine how you would re like basically cut the connections between tendons and muscles and bone and then reattach them. Yeah, especially in like the twentieth century. <laughs> yeah, this is in like nineteen like twenty. Yeah. And especially for, for um, you know, as a military procedure, it just just because there's so many patients, you know? Yeah. So I feel like it's not something that, that they could afford to make very complex because they would have so many patients just coming in yeah. all the time. Well, his his hospital was specifically meant to like come up with new methods mm-hmm. and try to make it as like safe and reliable as possible. So I, he, I think he was a bit exempt from 
a lot of like military hospitals where it's about it's a lot of um, triage treatment, mm-hmm, like treating as many people as possible. Exactly. So he was more like method development. Exactly. Like he, his, his job was like, I'm gonna find new methods mm-hmm. that work better, mm-hmm. and then maybe some of it can be used in, in like triage centers mm-hmm. ish. And I don't think this one became super popular, but the method is still useful and mm-hmm. it helped a lot of people. He uh, he eventually performed like several thousands of surgeries during during mm-hmm. the war. Productive guy. Uh, a productive guy. He also his most significant development, though the thing that he's like credited for, and that a lot of people he's like this is this is why Gillies is like the guy. He developed a, a technique called the tubed pedicle, a technique that used a flap of skin from the chest or forehead that you could swing over the face. The flap remained attached, which we've talked about before, like mm-hmm. the forehead swing but Gillies has the idea of stitching the the skin flap into a tube before they would like basically just leave it open and he noticed that like when when the flap was uh, when the skin was raised into a flap the edges of the skin would curl inwards Mm -hmm. and he thought okay what if I make it into a tube then there won't be as much exposed like skin there won't be as much exposed like vessels and it can sort of like the tube can heal itself very quickly and then it can like focus on the other thing. And this works marvelously well to the point where it reduces infection rates by like a, an extraordinarily amount. Uh, it increases blood flow, which also allows for larger grafts to be attached than before because previously people were kind of restricted by how much blood you could get through the, the flap. Um, the flap. The flap. But Gilly's method makes that you can basically cover the entire face with like skin from the chest. Okay, question. Yes. Do you then cut the tube open or do you just attach the tube onto, like, do you keep the tube in tube shape as you attach it to the face? Yes. Okay. So the, the, the end of the flap is like a big flap of skin, right? Yeah. But then the, the, the connective tissue between like your chest and your face uh, the, of the skin graft, that is sewn into a tube after you have attached it to the face. There are pictures on the internet that are, that are going to give me nightmares for ages to come where they take like a piece of skin from the chest, they form it into a nose, and then everything else they just they shape into a tube that goes to your chest. What and then you have like a little tube nose, and then when it heals, when the skin has grafted to your nose, then they can cut it and like attach the skin back. What is this called again? This is called a tubed pedicle. <gasps> we will post this on Twitter as well. That's what I mean. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And this, again, reduces infections, reduce, increases blood flow. It makes skin grafts become like a bit hit and miss to mm-hmm. become like very reliable. Mm-hmm. There are also images you may have seen when you, when you search for, when you search like skin grafts on the internet, as you do. But I think most people have seen an image of like a soldier who got his eyelids blown off who has a skin graft over his face. It almost looks like a Zorro mask a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's that is Gillis's work. I'm mm-hmm. also going to post that on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to make a note of all the things I'm going to post on Twitter. And skin grafts of that size hadn't really been possible before the tube pedicle. The methods he produced weren't entirely new. As mentioned, some methods in India used very similar techniques. But Gillis remarked that most plastic surgery being done during the war before him was mostly patchwork. They would stitch up soldiers with no consideration for the aesthetic. Gillies wanted to do plastic surgery that was both functional and aesthetic. He said, no one, it seemed, had given serious consideration to the aesthetic side, not even the French, uh, who might be thought to be sensitive to it. So unnecessary, Shade. (laughs) I know. No one cares about how these poor soldiers look. Even the French. You'd think the French would care. 
You're don't gonna, talk these French. I'll talk these French about the aesthetic. Then I don't care. One of the first patients to be treated was Walter Yeo, gunnery warrant officer on HMS Warspite. Yeo sustained facial injuries during the Battle of Jutland in 1916, including the loss of upper and lower eyelids. That's the guy I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. uh, the tubed pedicle produced a mask of skin grafted across his face and eyes, producing new eyelids. The results, although far from perfect, meant that he had a face once again. And Gillies went on to repeat the same sort of procedure on thousands of other people. Between the wars, between the Second and First War, he kept developing techniques. He kept teaching students. Not a ton is happening during that time. Like, he's developing some techniques, basically. He's hanging out. But during the Second World War, he also helped many doctors in developing methods to deal with burns, a common injury among pilots during the Battle of Britain. And he would spread the techniques he developed with, again, thousands of surgeons from all across the British Empire and visiting Americans. But he didn't develop too many new techniques during the war itself because he was very busy just doing surgery. I saw a quote somewhere where someone said that he would spend 30 hours a day in, in surgery. 30 hours? Yeah, like, that's the joke. He, like, he spends more yeah. time in surgery than there are hours in the day. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, but, and his clinic would, like, work constantly with, mm -hmm. like, doing, doing work. So he didn't develop too much. Turns out it's, it's easier to do like proper science when bombs aren't falling on your head. Who knew? But after the war, I want to keep talking about him. Normally he would have retired. He's reaching that age. But unfortunately he doesn't have enough money. Um, That's insane. I mean, considering the <laughs> amount of work that he yeah. had been doing and the, the... And like the recognition he had during his lifetime. Exactly. So. And he still didn't have a lot of money. Doesn't have enough money. Big so mood. Did it not pay very well, or how come? I mean, I'm, I'm honestly just really surprised. I don't know what the full reason was, but yeah, I guess it didn't... I guess it just didn't pay that well. Maybe he wasn't good with money. Maybe he wasn't, yeah. We don't, we don't know. But whatever, whatever the reason was, he had to keep working. And what do you do when you don't have money as a plastic surgeon? That's right. You develop the world's first phalloplasty for transgender men. Gillies started a private practice for plastic surgery to treat all sorts of people, but also to keep developing methods, being the flesh artist that he was. He performed the first ever gender confirmation surgery for trans men on a man called Michael Dillon, uh, a sailor with beard to boot. His Wikipedia picture like screams Navy. Uh, that's not a joke. If you look up his name, like you have never seen, he looks like Popeye. <laughs> uh, Gillies had previously reconstructed penises for injured soldiers and on intersex individuals, but eventually buckled under requests by Dillon after they found a way to do the surgery in a way that to not raise questions. Because if you, um, being trans in this time is not easy. Dylan was not out as trans. He had forged his academic records and had done basically everything possible to pass as a man. Gillies diagnosed Dylan with a condition of hypospadias where the urethra opening or the meatus doesn't appear from its usual position at the tip of the penis, but rather lower down, sometimes in the testicle sac. Dylan didn't have a testicle sac or a penis, but the diagnosis made it so that he could undergo surgery of the penile variety, and Gilly's reconstruction endeavors wouldn't cause any raised eyebrows. Dylan also became a physician himself, developing more methods of trans surgery along with Gilly's. They developed methods for gender confirmation surgery for trans women using a flap and folding technique, a variation of which is still commonly used today, Although new methods were developed in the 80s, but that's that's pretty cool. This was used on a woman called Roberta Cowell, who by all accounts was a real asshole. <laughs> Why was she an asshole? Uh, even to Michael Dillon. Well, uh, she managed to find an excuse for her transition uh, by the fact that she was intersex. So her transition merely adjusted her natural position, according to her. 
She considered anyone being trans for a non-intersex reason fake, including the many trans people who saw her as an inspiration. The people who have followed me have often been those with male chromosomes, XY, so they have been normal people who've turned themselves into freaks by means of the operation. Mm. True scum. Yeah. <laughs> She's not very fun. No, she doesn't seem like a very nice person. <laughs> but she got her surgery using this new method. Um, Michael Dillon also did her orchidectomy, illegally, by the way, before he was an actual licensed doctor. And it all had its start with World War I. So thank you, the Black Hand Terrorist Organization, for killing the heir of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because it eventually led to advances in trans healthcare. <laughs> Reconstructive surgery still happens today, and a lot of people who talk about it like to talk about like face implants or face transplants from like news stories where like monkeys tear faces of people. That's literally the most common type I hear about reconstructive surgery. <laughs> but the most common surgeries out there when it comes to reconstructive plastic surgery uh, is tumor removal in regards to making sure that the void left by the tumor and uh, scar and all of that heal properly. Uh, scar revision so that scars don't heal wrong or get infected, and breast reduction surgery, which people do for all sorts of reasons, uh, the most common of which is simply back pain. All of these things are called reconstructive surgery rather than cosmetic because they do serve a health function. The cosmetic is part of it, that is a pretty significant part of it, but they all do impact the health of the patient in a way that, for example, getting a nose job because you want a cuter nose would, or getting breast implants. Gillies is still fondly remembered by the plastic surgery community, especially at the American Academy of Facial, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, where every year they give out the Harold Gillies Award for Best Research Paper. Plastic surgery is seen today as almost vain or shallow to some people, but the vast majority of plastic surgery work is done for people who do it because they either want to restore function or appearance in a way that they're comfortable with. And that's true for people who just want to be prettier, nothing wrong with that people who have gender dysphoria, or people who have been injured in wars or accidents. The surgeons and the methods do not judge. And I think there's something beautiful in that. Uh, do you have a valid reason for wanting plastic surgery or not? Gilly says, who gives a crap? No one can decide for you how you should look. You should be the master of your own appearance. Um, let's build a penis, if you want. <laughs> let's build a penis. Let's build a penis. He was the first Wise to build words. a penis, mm. so good on him. Yeah. He knows. He knows. We didn't mention breast implants. We did it. No booba posting. We avoided the obvious answers. <laughs> Wait. You came here for boob for breast implants and you got nothing. No, 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 no. I did I did mention it a little bit. I promised you breast implants and I mentioned God, breast implants. Yeah. I said the 20th century saw an emergence in injectables, paraffin. Oh yeah! It was used to correct wrinkles mm. as well as absent testicles and small breasts. Yeah, and then they became horrifying, horrifying diseases. wax cancers. Yeah. but you did I mention it's true. I said that I was going to mention it, and I did. Mm -hmm. It's just horrifying wax tumor breast implant. Yeah, I honestly I feel like we should do an episode about um, like gender confirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. I feel like it could be its own thing, and I know that you've been wanting to talk about uh, Hirschfeld. And I feel like... We could make four episodes about Hirschfeld. Yeah, but I feel like it would go really well with that. Yeah, we could. I'd be down. What else is interesting? Then I'll also mention her, uh, Gillies again. I f we've heard enough about Gillies. 
He's, we've heard enough of we've him. Heard, we, I've had enough. I don't know if I want to do another episode about him. We'll do an episode Well, we'd about... have to mention him, and then we can just refer to this episode. Okay. Okay, we'll do an episode about breasts and, um, and gender... Boob posting. And gender... Uh, re- not reassignment. Fuck, what's it called? I always forget. Gender confirmation? Sex changes. No! <laughs> <laughs> what is it called Mia it, it, it has so many gender names. as the resident trans person it has so many different names some of them is gender reaffirming Reaffirm. some gender conform, conforming, conforming gender confirmation yeah there are so many names for it and no one can agree sexual reassignment surgery is also very common it's also like SRS I think I, I, I like uh, gender reaffirming personally mm-hmm. um, I just always forget <laughs> I always forget the word it's so it's so stupid yeah um, there are, there, again, there are too many names. Our community has not decided on a name yet, and it's tearing the community apart. <laughs> if you ask like eight trans trans women about how what to call the operation, they will give you eight different names. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning about nose jobs. I did. We could probably make also a full episode about like modern day injectables, like lip fillers and stuff like that. Talk more about paraffin. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would get very, um, there would be a lot of like chemical names oh, in that episode. Yeah, maybe. But it would allow me to talk about the, um, there, there was a, there was a, like a, an alleyway surgeon in New York mm-hmm. who. An would, alleyway surgeon? This literally would do surgeries in an alleyway, who would do butt implants using concrete. Oh my god, I've seen, I keep seeing stories from Vice about people getting Brazilian butt lifts and mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, I guess they just inject basically concrete, yeah, concrete. into their butt cheeks. Yeah. It's, it's don't do that. Don't do it. It's not worth it. They get rock hard asses and also it doesn't look great after a no, while. Because like, it settles it in a weird way. It settles and sags. Mm-hmm. I don't... <laughs> it's concrete. You don't want a concrete um, ass. An ass is supposed to be soft. No. Yes, I, I always I always say that when you... I mean, if you're going to do plastic surgery... I mean, you have to. You have to splurge. You have that's to. your face, yeah. or that's like, your ass. You get what you pay for, so you for better sure. pay you well. Better pay well. Yeah, it's like non. It's not something that you want to yeah. like. You can't go on. to the dollar store <laughs> to get your ass. <laughs> to get your ass, dollar store booba. <laughs> dollar store vagina. <laughs> oh my god. Ah! Um. Oh. Those those clinics do exist, and there are stories around the world about some clinics like that. Mm-hmm. I know that there was there used to be a French clinic for trans women where it would be very cheap. It would be one of the cheapest in Europe, but it would also the results would not be good. Mm-hmm. It would the horror stories coming out of that would be awful. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a clinic in Morocco which was cheap and also very good because it was like a run by a very handsome French navy man. What does Who apparently being... slept with his patients a hold, lot, like hold consensually. On. Hold, okay, what does him being handsome have to do with it? It comes with the price. Dinner and a show. Dinner being the surgery. <laughs> show being the surgeon. <laughs> Just, if you're, going, if you're going to Morocco, you, you make a vacation out of it. Is that where you're going to get yours? I don't think he's around anymore. This was like in the 50s. Oh, okay, that's too he's bad. probably dead. I don't think Morocco is much of a center of bustling trans surgery anymore, unfortunately. Anyway, we're so off track. Uh, this has been the plastic surgery episode. How do you feel? I feel good. I'm, I'm thinking about plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, all, this, all the stock of plastic surgery is making me have thoughts. <laughs> have thoughts. We're having thoughts. 
Anyway, this has been our episode on plastic surgery. Yeah. I'm Mia Mulder. Uh, I'm Raluca Montano. Go uh, go check us out on Twitter at LeechFestPod. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patreon is LeechFestPodcast if you want to support us. Mm-hmm. Leave a review on iTunes if you're listening to us there. And uh, remember, if you're getting plastic surgery, definitely don't be cheap. Don't get concrete. Don't get concrete.